Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. This episode contains discussion of suicide. Listener discretion is advised. On January 8th, 2014, my sister walked the Benjamin Franklin Bridge. My sister disappeared. How? Why? I never viewed the security photographs myself. I didn't ask to. Is it really her? Are we sure? Perhaps it was easier not to know not to have the definitive proof of having seen it myself. The image in my head is thus one of my own creation. A girl walking. Kate walking. Poof. Gone. That's Kylie Letty, a 25-year-old graduate student in social work and public policy and author of the memoir The Perfect Other. Kylie's is a story about sisterhood, grief, and the way what we don't know, perhaps what we might never know, has the power to shape us. It's also a story of great love, strength, tenacity, and meaning-making. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. Me and my sister, we were six years apart. We grew up a little bit in Connecticut, a little bit in Virginia, but mostly I'm talking about our years when we were living in Marblehead, Massachusetts, which is a small coastal town, just very idyllic. And it was a beautiful place by the beach. We had it good. (laughs) We were so loved. My parents took such good care of us. We were kind of best friends. We would spend our days at the beach picking out seashells. (laughs) I mean, it was really, it was really wonderful. And then when I was around seven, we moved to Philadelphia. 
first for a year in the city and then to the suburbs near Villanova University. And that was when Kate was kind of entering her teenage years. What precipitated the move from Marblehead to Philly? My dad's job caused us to move. He was working in tech at the time, so it was a lot of just, you know, constant fluctuations, a lot of moving around companies. And so this was in the sort of, you know, tech boom, right? Yeah, exactly. The dot-com bubble. I was around seven, so it was like 2004 or five. So you were going into the first grade when you moved to Philly, and Kate was going into seventh. Yes, exactly. I think that having my sister be five years my senior, I think it was just having like a second mom. Like she really took care of me. She prayed for me to be born. She was always asking for little sister and she had all these dolls. She was dressing up. She was obsessed with twins and Mary Kane Ashley Olsen. And she just really wanted to take care of me like that. And I idolized her. To me, she was just she was so courageous and bold and adventurous. And she really challenged me. She loved me. I didn't speak for a while when I was little. <laughs> I was just so quiet. My grandparents would be talking and joking about how when I was little, I would just stare at everybody. <laughs> my mom keeps saying it's because I had so much to watch. There was always a show going off my sister. She was a performer. She was just like a ball of energy, so much light so funny, and I just was always entertained <laughs> by her. Growing up, my mom and my sister and I were super close, and my dad was really great too. You know, he's working a lot, so that was less of an impression in my mind than my mom in that sense. She's been the perfect mix between being your friend and being your parent always <laughs> since I was little. I've always felt like I could tell her everything. My parents were really conscientious about trying to give us everything that they may not have had. They were just trying their best. So when you look back now or, you know, for these last years, as I think we just, we do as human beings, when something goes awry, we look for the moment when we could have, it's a fantasy, I think, but, you know, the the moment where we could have stopped it or it could have gone differently or we could have seen it as it was happening and sort of altered its course. And, you know, one of the things that I think is so powerful about your story is throughout it, you, Kylie, the adult, are looking for the sort of cracks and fissures and the, the place where this exuberant, beautiful, dynamic older sister where the signs were, where she was exhibiting the beginnings of maybe something being more than that, more complicated than that. What would you say for you is the first memory or the first moment as you look back on it now of what that might have been? And also, what did it feel like at the time? So I would say that until we really moved to Philadelphia, I, I don't remember anything being that awry, I think that my mom has talked about how my sister was in trouble sometimes at school when she was younger, you know, just getting into arguments with other kids or getting into little petty fights here and there. But she just had a really bold personality. And I think at that time that seemed like not a problem, maybe even a good thing that she could advocate for herself. And she was also really smart. <laughs> so 
she could get away with things. But when we moved to Philadelphia, she was 13 and I was turning seven. And that's when we started seeing a little more kind of concerning signs. Again, it's just so hard to tell when, you know, what's normal, what's not normal. So it was, it was more like skipping schools. There was more partying, some mood swings, but a lot of it was still typical teenage stuff. And I think it's just, it's so difficult to distinguish between what's going on actually and where's the line. I know my mom has said before, maybe if I was born first, if I was the first kid, they could have seen that some of this stuff wasn't normal. At that point, they had nothing to compare it to either. So it all seemed fine. But still, just a little more concerning starting around then. My sister, she had a lot of superstitions and signs she believed in and different little rituals she would kind of include me in. And one of them was wishing on 11-11. And my whole life at 11-11 p.m. and 11-11 a.m., we would make a wish together. And when I was seven, I remember the first time I had a wish that was that I... I wish my sister gets better. And I think it's because I was picking up on the fact that she was getting into trouble at school more and my parents were more concerned and that something was going on here. And I, I just wanted my sister back and making sure she was okay. And because I had this pattern of superstition and ritual established, I ever since then kind of kept that wish the same. So I'd always, every 11-11, every birthday, every time I had a wishbone or anything else, I would always ask for that one thing. So I think on some level I was just picking up on what was going on without actually being consciously or cognitively aware of it exactly. In Kylie's memoir, she writes, My sister was the kind of girl people write books about. I was the kind of girl who read such books, who listened to such songs, and wondered how a spark in one person could light a flame in so many others. Suffice it to say, Kylie idolizes her big sister Kate, even when Kate gets in trouble, even when Kate gets angry and violent. I think I was in third grade, and I had a friend sleeping over, and my mom and my sister got in a fight, and I have no idea what the fight was instigated about. I can't remember. I think maybe it's something to do with her cell phone. Um, my mom was taken away because she got in trouble or something along those lines. But it had escalated into violence with my sister hitting my mom and then her having to actually go to the hospital because she it was like her cheekbone that got hurt. And that was, for me as a little kid, the first time I remember having to shield somebody else from what was going on and trying to keep my friend away from it and have her not see what was going on. So she didn't go home and talk to her parents and didn't become a bigger thing. And that was really the last time I had friends sleep over because it was just, it was too difficult to know when my sister's temperament was going to get out of control and when these kind of angry outbursts and mood swings would happen. So from then on, it was easier to keep everything a secret and not talk about what was going on and make sure that no one else got hurt too. That was a big thing for my mom as well, was just trying to protect Kate and also protect other people from Kate, unfortunately. So around that time, you actually come up with an ingenious cover story for why you can't have sleepovers. Yes. <laughs> so I started telling people that my house was haunted 
which is a very childish probably thing to start saying, but it was a very old home with, you know, those rickety floorboards and all those spooky things that happen with old homes. That was a way for me to say that I didn't want to have a sleepover at my house. Like, why don't we go to your house instead? Or after school, why don't we go to your house to watch this movie or watch this show and not mine? Yeah, and in some ways it occurs to me, I mean, in a way, your house was haunted. I mean, whether in a supernatural way or, you know, haunted by what was happening inside of it. Yeah, exactly. Within this haunted house, there are also pockets of joy. When things are good, they're very, very good. And when they're bad, they're terrible. But the good moments contain real happiness that Kylie, Kate, and their mom share and also a kind of playful magic that together they create. I'm thinking it was December, I think I was around 12. And I'm not sure who had the idea first, it was probably my sister. <laughs> it was something she would come up with. But my mom, my sister and I had this, you know, kind of ridiculous idea that we'd go around town and put these little red dot stickers on the deer crossing signs in our neighborhood and make it into Rudolph Red Nose. <laughs> image so we would we bought these little red dots at Staples and then we ran around town in the middle of the night I think it was probably like not that late (laughs) realistically because I was little I thought it was really late and I remember like my sister had to lift me on her shoulders so I could stick the sticker on there and we were just cracking up the entire time trying not to pee our pants because we were laughing so hard and I remember that just being this another example of even though things were bad at all these times. We also were having fun together. We were still family. My sister kind of brought this like adventurous spirit out in all of us that made us all laugh and do something different than we normally would have done. Underscoring these fun adventures, there is the prevailing sense of something being wrong. Kylie internalizes this feeling and begins to develop anxiety, particularly anxiety about her health and body. She scrolls through WebMD, looking up all sorts of symptoms and treatments, anything she can find. Without quite knowing what's wrong, she thinks whatever it is must live inside her. I think a big part of that was trying to get control and also because we couldn't find out what was happening to my sister, it was like, what can I control in this element? What's something that, there are these like insidious forces that are happening that are changing my sister. Am I going to change too? Is something bad going to happen to me too? And you're kind of on this like hyper vigilance of always waiting for the next shoe to drop. And I also think a big part of it was that I was under so much stress, you know, watching these episodes of my sister. And that stress does sometimes cause strange things happen in the body. Like I had swollen lymph nodes and I thought I had maybe cancer as my lymph nodes were swollen under my, under my armpits or in my neck. And it was probably because I was just really stressed out. And, you know, that whole mind-body connection that was... We were dealing with Kate, we were also dealing with, you know, with ourselves, trying to deal with the stress. I also remember thinking at one point, like, you know, everyone has some kind of family secret they're hiding. Like, we're not, we're all just not talking about something. (laughs) You know, other families are going through something similar, and they're just not saying it either, so I shouldn't say anything. And did you and your mom ever talk about it at that time, or was it not until later? I think my mom and I did talk about it that time. I remember being very aware that something was off. I was worried about her, but I don't think I knew how I should be worried yet. I think and we didn't have a diagnosis really for years. And there were things tossed around and we tried therapists. So I knew that my sister like 
you know, was struggling with something, but it was just, it was so inconcrete at that point. And it was also just growing pains, like just being a teenager, you never know if someone's going to grow out of something and this is just a phase or it's hormonal or environmental or, you know, induced by drugs or alcohol use or the partying, like you just have no idea what's actually happening. We'll be right back. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Around this time, Kate also begins to have a series of accidents, which result in head injuries. She has her first concussion at a high school party, where she falls and hits her head. One night, soon after, she tries to sneak out of her bedroom window to meet up with friends, and she falls and hits her head again. These falls are worrisome, but not dire. 
Then, when she's a freshman in college, it does become dire. She hurts her head once more, and this time, she suffers a serious brain injury. She's put into an induced coma for a number of days. Kylie is beside herself with worry. Her anxiety spikes. She begins to literally see red all around her. We use that expression, seeing red, but you, who I think all through your life saw different periods of time in color in a certain way. You know, Marblehead was blue and Philadelphia was green. Now you're seeing red and Kate is very changed and your mother is like desperately searching for reasons for what this behavior could possibly be. Is it because of the traumatic brain injury? Is it because of Lyme disease? Is it because of the series of head injuries? Is it because of a condition that she had of polycystic ovarian syndrome? Yeah. After the head injury, my sister's behavior just worsened dramatically. And I think I was around like 13 or 14. And I remember my sister had like an episode. I, I don't remember what, again, you know, actually inspired it because these fits were just kind of senseless. They would, she would get triggered by something we couldn't see or hear, or something that was going on inside her own head. So it's hard to locate exactly what happened. But I remember being in my family's like entranceway of our house and just being so overwhelmed, so upset, and honestly so angry that I saw red, actually, and I had to sit down because I was going to faint. And it really scared me because I didn't know that was that something actually happened. <laughs> that was just like a literary phrase people used. But, it, you know, I really did physically see red that moment. And I think also, like, part of it, too, was that I was 12, 13, 14 when all of this is really escalating. And those are the years when you're starting to develop your own sense of self. And my sister's sense of self was deteriorating. So there was this element where I was kind of starting to, you know, voice my opinion more or challenge her more. And that wasn't helping anything either. When Kate is at her worst, she's aggressive, hurling insults at Kylie. And when Kate is at her best, she's writing notes to Kylie, love letters to her little sister. Both versions of Kate exist simultaneously. The insults are particularly insidious, though, because these happen during the years when Kylie is coming into her own, forming her identity. When Kate tells Kylie that she's ugly or stupid, She's saying things that can't help but embed themselves into Kylie's sense of self. It was so hard when she could be really cruel. And she also was really intuitive kind of about what you were most insecure about. <laughs> so she could sense what you were struggling with and she could use that against you. She was still very smart in that sense. And it was really hurtful. And I think those are the moments where I just feel so grateful that I had my mom and I had parents that were supportive because... You know, if I didn't have somebody who was reinforcing my self-esteem and trying to make sure I was okay, those kind of insults when you're so young constantly, that verbal abuse can just deteriorate somebody. And it's still something that I'm, like, trying to unlearn. There's still insecurities I have that definitely derive from those times. I think also with mental illness, when somebody can shift so easily, and one second she can be telling me I'm the best sister in the world and writing me these notes saying that I'm so beautiful and she loves me more than anybody else in the world and all these things. And the next second, she's yelling at me saying that I'm hideous and that I'm stupid and no one likes me. And, you know, it's, it's so hard to try in your brain to combine those two people 
And I wish back then I had been able to differentiate more just between this is the illness talking, you know, my sister is unwell, and then also loving who she is otherwise. And because I think it's just, it's really hard to love somebody when they're suffering or also inflicting suffering onto you. It was around 14 when we started kind of getting a clearer diagnosis about schizophrenia. And I remember being, you know, an early preteen and Googling the term because I had no idea how to spell it even. <laughs> to me, it sounded like some mysterious illness. You know, I had no education around it. I don't think I'd really learned about it in school at that point. So there was a big learning process around understanding what mental illness is and what's going on here. And back then too, I mean, it wasn't that long ago, but still we have way more resources now than I think we did back then. And was it a really a diagnosis that was arrived at by ruling out every other avenue? It was a diagnosis I remember we got after the head injury, but it wasn't, it still shifted. You know, I think different, we didn't do so many doctors. We tried, my mom just tried like every single thing possible. And different doctors would say different things. Some would say, this is bipolar, this is schizophrenia, this is actually bipolar disorder too. I mean, there are so many, I think borderline was thrown around there at one point. Like there's just so many terms that it was always shifting that we still never had a clear picture. In retrospect, to me, because I just recently, <laughs> I studied psychology and I just got my graduate degree. Um, as a clinical therapist. So with all of that extra education, I think I can say that it was probably schizophrenia, but there is a lot of overlap here. And I just know she was having like active hallucinations. And that to me is like probably the most primary symptom that was most concerning. One of the things that you write about is, it wasn't my story to tell. And I was thinking about the burden, or I'm wondering, I guess, whether it felt like a burden to be holding that secret at that age, you know, and your friends had no idea what was going on, you know, within the walls of your home. Yeah, you know, I think holding that secret, I think it was important at the time because I did feel the need to protect my sister's privacy. And we were in the same school district and we had, you know, similar friends. My friend's older sister was friends with her, knew somebody. And it was really important to me that, you know, we can't handle Kate dealing with more stress, so we have to keep this insular and protect her. And for me, growing up, I think not having a lot of confidence, not being able to talk to a lot of people about what was actually going on, just made me feel more isolated. And I remember when I first looked up what the word schizophrenia meant, it, the etymology of it actually is, you know, schizo, which is split, and then phrenia, which is mind. It was like a split self. And I remember thinking like, you know, I'm kind of a split self right now. I'm going to school and I'm trying my best and, you know, taking all the AP classes I can. I'm a pretty type A person and I'm trying to be fun and happy and be a normal kid. And I'm going home. I'm dealing with this like really intense stuff that I'm not able to talk about. And I think a lot of people experience that. And that's the whole part about a secret that can just kind of kill you is we're all keeping these secrets in different ways and then no one's talking about it and that isolation just breeds more loneliness. It was pretty soon after the head injury that things escalated. I think it was like a month after the head injury that she went to the dean's office of her university at Drexel and accused the dean of like thinking bad thoughts or something really wild like that. And 
she got kicked out of school and then she her roommates were fighting with her and like it just happened really fast and I don't think we realized it when it was happening just how quickly things are spiraling after the head injury until you can look at it and you really write it down and you see that it's like okay no that was a breaking point We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. After this breaking point, Kate comes home for some time, and then she ends up living in her own apartment. She's ping-ponging between a couple of different ways of living, depending on the level of her stability. She's also growing increasingly paranoid. She's sure that people are staring at her or following her. She hears voices. To complicate matters, often people are looking at her or approaching her, but not with malintent. Kate is a beautiful young woman who sometimes stands out in a crowd. 
but through the lens of her mental illness, these admirers are spies who are out to get her. As her paranoia increases, her stability plummets. It was January 8th, 2014, and I was turning 17 three days on the 11th. So I remember that time period, like Kate had been in and out of group homes at that point. She had tried rehab centers for her drinking problem as well. I and mean, we, we've been trying different treatments and she was living in an apartment by herself pretty close to her house. And she'd recently been at home. Um, she'd still stay the night sometimes because we were like a five minute drive away. But that night in particular, I remember that I was really stressed out because I had an exam the next day. And I think retroactively, again, <laughs> looking at, you know, how much we try to control these things when things aren't in our control. For me, that was grades. And I was pretty type A about getting all A's and, you know, having exam the next day was a really big deal to me. And my sister called my mom and she was upset and she wanted to go to CVS. She wanted to like pick up some stuff. And my mom didn't want her walking because it was pretty cold out. So she drove by and she picked her up and went to CVS together and they got some Advil, something like that. It wasn't a lot of stuff. And then my mom drove her home and she talks about it as realizing that moment that something was wrong. She could sense that Kate wasn't normal, which again, at this point, like you were dealing with somebody who's having a lot of mood swings, but that's something that was really wrong that night. Like she just seemed really depressed and despondent and really quiet, which wasn't typical of her. And she was in the car with her and I called my mom and I was like, can you come home? Like, I'm home alone. I'm scared. The dogs are barking. You know, I'm really stressed out. So my mom dropped Kate off and everything was fine. And then she came home to be with me. After Kate and Kylie's mom comes home, everything changes. Kate goes missing. She disappears. The family is sick with worry and uncertainty, and Kylie is wrought with guilt. Because my birthday was in three days from that date, I was planning a birthday party, and it was just a dinner with some friends, and I didn't invite my sister, and I was lying to her about it because I didn't want to upset her. And I remember I carried like that guilt around with me as well, which is like a much smaller guilt. But then that night, because I was the one who called my mom and because I pulled her away, maybe she, you know, would have talked to my sister more, maybe she would have realized something, or who knows what would have happened. As time passes, the family still does not hear from Kate. Kylie and her mom go to Kate's apartment to try to unravel the mystery of where she's gone. When they log into her computer, they find a chilling, heartbreaking series of Google searches. What happens when we die, Kate had searched. How to kill yourself, she searched. The word death she searched. This is when Kylie and her mom begin to understand what's happened. Soon they learn that Kate took a taxi to the foot of the Benjamin Franklin Bridge that night. Soon, they find security footage showing that she walked up to the high point, and then she's gone. They assume she's jumped. I did feel all this guilt, and I think it took me a lot to come to the conclusion that, you know, with suicide, everyone feels guilt, and you you can torture yourself looking for all the things you did wrong, and it not just that night, but all the things before that night, and all the things you should have said that you didn't say, and there's just so much regret there. I think it really tortured me for most of my life. But Kylie yearns to find a way through this torture. 
She will never stop grieving the mysterious loss of her sister, but she will start healing, and she will do this the way we all do, by attempting to make meaning out of what has happened. There are many ways of making meaning, of course, but in Kylie's case, she begins to write. I was wanting to be a writer, and before, as long as I wish my, my sister gets better, I would wish, I hope my dreams come true. And for me, that has always been writing since I was like six, seven. I've always wanted to write a book. It's kind of my biggest dream in my life. And I remember at a certain point when Kate gets really sick, that I just dropped that <laughs> from my wishes, my birthday wishes and all my prayers. And I would just say like, just Kate get better. Like I, I can't focus on anything else besides Kate getting better. And I went to college, I studied psychology and English, a double major, but I was really focusing on psychology. And I really wanted, I was taking jobs, mental health field, I was volunteering in group homes with women who had schizophrenia and homeless shelters and doing all this research in the field because I think I had this guilt and I still do that, you know, my sister, we didn't save her. And like, how can I help somebody else or how can I make this count? And for me, the writing just kind of fell to the side. I did it myself, I never really submitted anything. I wasn't pursuing it. I was really gonna go and get my PhD in psychology and become a clinician. And then maybe someday I would write a book about psychology or something. But I wasn't really writing at that point that much. But I had taken a class, created nonfiction, and my teacher mentioned that there was a New York Times Modern Love College Essay Contest. And I had an earlier paper for that class that she liked and she thought maybe I should tune a little bit and then send it in. Also at that point, every time I tried to write, you know, I, these things were just coming up. I couldn't not write about it. <laughs> I was just like, in some form or another, I would always want to talk about grief or mental illness or being a sister or being a sibling. And so I'd written about my sister and the essay was about kind of how grieving has changed in the digital age in the sense that we now have Facebook active, Instagram active, and all these pages we didn't have before to look at. And you can still text somebody, you can still call them and maybe even hear a voice message it becomes harder to accept that this person's gone when you're getting a Facebook notification saying that their birthday is coming up. And for me, with somebody who disappeared without having that, we had evidence, obviously, but not having you know final proof, not having a body, not having an autopsy. It was just this big mystery in my mind that I still had this hope that you know maybe something else happened. Maybe my sister did get picked up by a car in the bridge instead of jumping, and she actually is living a whole other life, and she's okay. And there was still this feeling. So as part of my coping mechanism, I would text her phone sometimes and I would, or I would message her on Facebook and I would tell her about things that were going on. Because to me, I think it made it feel less real if I could keep her updated. Like if she knew what was happening in the world and in my life, it wasn't like she was really gone. And there was this like, you know, magical thinking, this cognitive distortion in my head that was saying, you know, it's going to be harder for her to come back if she has all these memorials or, or like if she doesn't know what's happening. So I would like try to keep her going, even though I knew, I think logically, like, you know, we knew what happened. There was still that kind of shred of hope for me. So the essay I wrote was about that experience and I submitted it. It was like really the second piece of writing I'd ever really submitted in my life for anything. <laughs> and I remember being in my dorm room when I was a senior in college and I just said a prayer to my sister and I just said, if you don't want this out there, you know, if you're up there, if you can hear me, then just don't have this get published. Their odds of getting published were so low. There were like 2,000 submissions and one winner. And I was like, it's not going to happen anyway. But like, just in case, Kate just like 
tell me now and I'll never write about you again. I'll drop this and I'll let you be in peace. I'll protect your privacy still. In my head, I still had this like privacy to protect and I still had this secret I was keeping, which is this image of my sister who was this big personality. And I was still trying to, you know, keep her in people's minds that way and not expose what was actually happening. So I said this prayer and then I ended up winning the contest. I found out when I was visiting my grandparents for Easter in Naples and it was the week of my sister's birthday. So to me, that was like this big sign that was like, kind of go for it. And I think that for me opened up not only the world of writing again, but also this feeling of connection with my sister that I do still feel like we're doing things together, if that makes sense. <laughs> Maybe that's illogical, but I still feel this like really strong connection. And a lot of that guilt was not alleviated, but lessened by feeling like she wanted me to honor her in some way. At the time, it felt like such a singular, chaotic story, and we were so alone in it. And then you look outside, and you're like, wow, people are actually struggling with this, and no one's talking about it. And I think now, being able to talk about it was big for me because I don't have to protect my sister anymore, you know, like she's gone. My mom and I came to that conclusion together that all we have are each other and we don't have to be protecting each other anymore. So really it's about trying to help people who can't talk now, who are still actively having somebody struggle and who can't handle that burden, who need somebody who can go out there and say like, this is what was happening and this is what it's like to struggle with somebody who's dealing with these things and how hard it is. Kylie's book begins with the following epigraph. All I can hope is that it helps, even just a single person, even just for a moment. By the life path Kylie has chosen for herself, both as a clinician, someone who studies mental illness, and having written this book, she is creating hope and beauty out of the sorrow and chaos of her sister's life. It doesn't erase the sorrow or the chaos, but it does help. Here's Kylie reading one last passage from The Perfect Other. My sister is in the way I dress, the colors I choose, how I am challenged to be a more original, truer version of myself. She is in the moments when I say yes to an adventure instead of no. I feel her when that song is playing in the car and everyone is singing along, and I'm reminded of what it is to be alive. Or when the fog rolls in, turning the trees into skinny silhouettes, and the sun hangs low in a red summer sky. I see her in what is beautiful or interesting or sad, which is to say that I see her in everything. She is nowhere tangible, which is to say that she is everywhere. We keep and keep and keep. We remember and remember and remember. We collect heart-shaped shells and signs and old notebooks and recollections. We hold on, Memorize the lines of her tan, slender hands and the sound of her laugh, engraving ourselves with the smallest details, lest we ever forget. We try to make amends, reason with ghosts, explain ourselves to the wind. And then there comes a time we must let go. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. Molly Zakur is the story editor, and Dylan Fagan is the executive producer. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, please leave us a voicemail, and your story could appear on an upcoming episode. Our number is 
secret zero. That's the number zero. You can also find me on Instagram at Danny Writer. And if you'd like to know more about the story that inspired this podcast, check out my memoir, Inheritance. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.